Please join us in giving special thanks to our company of patrons. Story folk Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selina Vokenhauer. Thanks to their support, the stories keep flowing. You are listening to Lore and Legend, tales from our mythic past. Hello and welcome. I'm Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Today, I'm talking to Nicholas Jubber, a travel writer with a passion for the history of storytelling and the evolution of myth and fairy tales all over the world, from the deep past to our present day. So far, he's written a whole series of books on these topics, including The Prester Quest, tracking the travels of a medieval physician in search of the mythical priest king Prester John, drinking Arak off an Ayatollah's beard, exploring the Persian-speaking world through the epic poetry of Fadowski's Shanama, The Book of Kings, and Epic Continent, exploring how Europe's culture has been shaped by its most iconic stories from the Odyssey to the Icelandic sagas. As well as winning the Dolman Travel Book Award for the Presta Quest and being shortlisted again for Epic Continent, Nick has written for The Guardian, The Telegraph and the BBC, given talks at numerous festivals and is also a playwright whose work has been performed at the Edinburgh Festival, the Finborough Theatre and the Actors' Centre. And today Nick is going to tell us about his most recent book, The Fairy Tellers, a journey into the secret history of fairy tales, in which he explores the lives of seven key figures behind the stories that many of us know and love today, but who themselves have often languished in obscurity. And in his research for this book, Nick has travelled across the continent in pursuit of the stories and the unique individuals who told and recorded them for posterity. In our interview, we talk about Nick's love for fairy tales in his childhood, the identity of these seven forgotten tellers and the stories that they brought to us, his travels in pursuit of these individuals, and the unique characteristics of fairy tales and their ongoing power and appeal in our contemporary culture. But first, you guessed it, Nick is going to tell us a story. He's chosen a story from the Tale of Tales, a fairy tale collection from 17th century Italy, composed by the Italian poet and courtier Gian Battista Basile, one of the earliest recognised national collections of fairy tales and quoted by the Brothers Grimm themselves as an inspiration for their own work. It includes some of the earliest recorded versions of stories that we know as Cinderella, Snow White, Rapunzel and Sleeping Beauty. But Nick has chosen a different story to share with us today. This story is called The Tale of the Flea. The king of High Mountain has been bitten by a flea. When he looks at this tiny bloodsucker, he decides it is the most beautiful thing he has ever seen. Feed on me. So he lets it suck his blood, grow nurtured by his royal veins. Gradually the flea grows bigger. He has animals brought to feed it, goats, cows, horses, anything that will feed the flea. And it grows and grows until it's the size of a sheep. And that is as far as it can go. Suddenly the flea is dead and the king is distraught. I have lost my beautiful flea. But he has its hide peeled away and displayed in the court. And as the courtiers go around, they will look up at it and go, what on earth is that? But the king realises none of them knows. None of them can tell. So he sets them a challenge. He says, I will give the hand of my daughter Portziella in marriage to whoever can identify this skin here. Well, people flock from all over the kingdom and many other kingdoms besides. Dukes, lords, princes, they come along determined to win this challenge. That, says one of them, must be the skin of a lynx. Another says, no, 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 that's a crocodile. Another, no, it's a brown bear that's lost all its fur. 
Wrong, 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 says the king. None of you can work it out. But then into the court steps an ogre. Now, this is the most repulsive, most hideous looking, stinkiest ogre you could ever have seen in your life. It's got tusks stretching down to its neck. It's got warts all over its face. It's got mad rolling eyes and claws and horns and bristly patches of fur. It goes up to the hide, takes one sniff and says, that is the ringleader of all fleas. Oh, says the king, yes, you, you might have hit the bullseye on that one. Uh, somebody get my daughter Portiella, will you? Well, meanwhile, Portiella, the princess, has been sitting in her chamber, pretty much oblivious to what's going on. But when she takes a look at who her prospective husband is going to be, she lets out an almighty shriek. Uh, Father, I think I need to have a little word with you. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm sorry about this, Portiella, but I, I'm afraid I did give my word. Your word? Have you seen what that creature looks like? It's the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah, yes, I know, but I, I'm a king and I gave my word. And as you know, a king's word is sacrosanct. No, no, father, I am not marrying him. Portiella, I have given my word. Well, the more Portiella resists, the more the king insists until finally the princess is dragged out of the court, her wrist clasped in the claw of the ogre, taken out of the kingdom of High Mountain, down, down, down into the dark forest below. There, the leaves, mulchy, smelling, the darkness, the canopy overhead, the sun torn away, and she's led by the ogre to his cavernous hut in the heart of the forest, where she weeps. She smells the reeking stench of rotting flesh. So, says the ogre, would you like any of these uh, dead people that I've got gathered here? Oh, Portiella lets out a terrible cry. What has happened to me? Not really your taste, asks the ogre, because although he might be an ogre, he is actually very keen for his new wife to enjoy herself in his humble abode. Well, don't you worry, he says. Tomorrow I'm going to go on a hunt for wild pig. I'll bring you back something really tasty. Portiella sits in the corner of the hut thinking, oh no, my life is a nightmare. The next day, she's wailing in grief at what's happened to her when the ogre is away on the hunt and an old woman passes by. What's all this fuss about? Why are you crying, my dear? Portiella looks up at her. Why am I crying? I'm a princess. I used to eat noodles in game sauces. I had sweet meats for pudding. And now, look, I've got to eat the bones of dead people and I'm married to a horrible ogre. Oh dear, says the old woman. Yes, when you put it like that, it does seem like a bit of a fall. I'll tell you what though, I've got something that could help you. You see, my seven sons all have magical powers. One of them, he can spit and create a sea of soap. Another one, he can make a piece of iron into a razor field. Another one, he can throw a stone and it turns into a huge tower. And another one, he can shoot a crossbow so accurately that he can hit the eye of a chicken from miles away. I'll tell you what, I'll send them over tomorrow and they'll help you escape. Thank you, thank you. That's that's really perfect. I'm so grateful to you, says Portiella. And so the next day when the ogre's off on the hunt again, the seven sons come along to help Portiella escape. Come on, we better be quick. Off they run. But it doesn't matter how fast they try and get away. The ogre has the most brilliant sense of smell and immediately knows that something's up. As soon as he gets back to his hut, where's my wife? I'm going to have to go and find her. So he's on the chase. Well, the first brother immediately spits creates a huge sea of soap. That'll keep him back, surely. But the ogre just wades through the sea, coming towards them. He's relentless. So one of the others, he throws down his piece of iron, creates a razor field. That doesn't stop the ogre either. He puts on iron armor and leaps over the field. I'm coming to get you, my wife. I'm coming for you. 
So they keep going. They try out their various different magical powers until the one who can make a tower out of a stone creates a huge big tower. Quick, let's get up to the top of the tower. The ogre will never catch us now. They're at the top of the tower. The ogre's at the bottom. Surely that's it. Surely they've escaped now. But then the ogre gets hold of a grape harvester's ladder and starts clambering up, clambering up. So then the son who's got the crossbow, he says, don't worry, I'll shoot it down. He takes his crossbow, he shoots bullseye straight into the ogre's eye. The ogre crashes down to the ground and they run down. And before the ogre can get back up, they slit its throat like a lump of ricotta. And that is the end of the ogre. And so... The seven brothers take the dead ogre and Portiella back all the way up to the kingdom of High Mountain. And there they are loaded with treasures by the king, who is very grateful to have his daughter back. And he realises his folly and admits, you know, Portiella, even kings occasionally do make mistakes. We'll find another husband for you. And this time I'll let you have at least a little bit of a say in the matter. Thank you, Father. And that is the end of the tale. Brilliant. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Well, thanks very much for having me and thanks for your interest in my book. So uh, why did you choose that story in particular? I think this story really captures a lot of what is the essence, I think, of Gian Battista Basile as a storyteller. It's got this ogre who, in many ways, is the villain of the story, but he's also actually very wise. He's the one who knows what the what the skin is and knows that it's a flea. And he actually wants he wants his wife to to be happy. He wants Portiella to be happy. But um, obviously, they're incompatible. This is centuries before Shrek. Um, so, uh, you know, in the end, it, it doesn't work out for them. But it's also, um, I think it's also very Basilian in the sense that there's this sense of the madness of the court, that every, everything's a bit crazy. You know, the king is an idiot. And I think that's very typical of Basilia, who feels that the people in power are often the most unsuitable, um, which is something that I think people can very much, you know, uh, uh, you know um, empathise with today. And also the idea of having very vocal female characters. So even though, and I think it's quite typical of Basilia, actually, that the the heroine, Portiella, it doesn't necessarily have that self-determination that you can get in some of some other fairy tales, but she does She does have a voice and she is able to express her fury at the situation that she's in. And some of the most wonderful passages in, in Basile's version are when she's expressing just how angry she is that she's being married off to this ogre. So it has sort of many of these qualities that make it very Basilian. But it also is a story that... that you find echoes of it in in many different tales. There's a there's a grim uh, tale in the Brothers Grimm. The, the is it the I think the six servants where servants with various different magical powers, um, which has that echo. And many stories where you have that idea of the sort of the six or seven brothers or servants or different sort of people with these various magical powers. There's even a, a tale in the Ocean of the Streams of Story, the Indian collection, where um, a character uh, Shringa Buja, I think. Um, they're called who who has to fight off a, um, a demon with various different magical obstacles so it's a story that has that sort of echo that that sort of connects it with with stories all around the world um and and i wanted to to, to, let, to tell it as well because i think it's one of those stories that isn't necessarily as iconic as you know as, as some of the more famous ones but you know i, I think it's a really a really entertaining and, and a magical sort of and strange story Let's kind of just start with the, you know, what was the inspiration behind this book? You, you talk in the book about the role of fairy tales in your childhood. I always really loved fairy tales. And one of my earliest memories of childhood reading is of sort of being under the duvet with a torch, reading very particular stories. I have very specific memories of reading The Snow Queen and imagining myself like Gerda riding on the talking reindeer to the palace of the Snow Queen. Or another one was that I imagined myself as um, on the flying rock with Sinbad the Sailor in one of the Arabian Nights tales. So there were these very specific tales that really sort of got inside my head, inside my imagination. And they they sort of stayed there, actually. And so even when I was in my teens and I uh, in my late teens uh, writing, I got very into playwriting. And um, one of the plays that I wrote was was about a whole bunch of fairy tale characters. We had 
and nursery rhyme characters as well. So we had Humpty Dumpty. The plot was about who pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall. And it was a sort of detective mystery where various different suspects were brought in. And so there were goblins and there was a, a, a fairy tale king and queen and the princess who was half goblin and all kinds of different characters. We also had Elvis in it. So it was a sort of mishmash of all kinds of genres. But I think those stories were sort of still bubbling around inside me. And then much later, I had children and started reading the fairy tales to them. And I found it really just really interesting the, which ones they responded to. Um, there's a, a Russian story about the firebird. It's a wonderful, very sort of flamboyant Russian fairy tale. And my youngest son got really excited about that so that we have an apple tree in our garden. He was sort of looking up at the apple tree going, do you think the firebird's going to come and steal our apples? And they got very into Jack and the Beanstalk and I'd have to sort of chase them down the stairs pretending to be the giant. So, um, but then they, they sort of wandered off into dinosaurs and spaceships and other, and other stories. But I found that I was still sort of stuck with these stories in my head, still wanting to know more. And I think that one of the instincts that it, that I have as a, as I guess as a, as a nonfiction writer is that you want to find out what's going on behind the scenes. You know, a lot of uh, what I've done in the past, nonfiction and travel writing is that you're, you're going to places that are often quite well known, but you want to find out what's really going on there and what's what what what's happening. What's the secret behind this place? Can you sort of pull the back off the watch and find out the inner workings? And so I was curious to find out a bit more about what what is it that made these stories or who is it that made these stories? And it, it became very much a question of who quite early on. And looking at trying to find if there were particular people who could if I could sort of thread together a, the story of the fairy tale through through these people's lives and ask what it was about their lives that connected with these stories and I think there's a sort of I can I guess an idea at the heart of this which was repeated to me by a number of people who I interviewed during the course of the research which is that there is a reason that people connect with certain stories they bring something of themselves to those stories and so even though these stories are often very universal and have been retold by many different people there are very particular individuals who, who crystallized those stories in some way, brought something of their own lives and the places where they came from. And, and that was the sort of the heart of it, really, trying to find out what it was about their lives that made these stories into these sometimes very iconic stories that we know. And also, though, to look at some of the lesser known, some of the forgotten stories, which I think are often as, as imaginative or even more imaginative, and even more interesting than some of the ones that have become so famous. Yeah, I mean, uh, myth and legend and fairy tales is a, a you know, a vast universe. Um, and, uh, you know, Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen are probably the, the headliners, but there's so much more out there, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think those headliners, like with everything, really, like with every genre and every medium, they, they, they sort of swamp it and dominate and, and, People, other people sort of disappear underneath them. And that's where it's so interesting to look sort of under that surface. I mean, you mentioned the Grimm's and I think it's the Grimm's I are, I think the more I learned about the Grimm's actually, the more, the more I found myself really, really loving them for all their, all their flaws. They were brilliant and so resilient. You know, they had a lot of, they had to deal with a lot of difficulties in their lives and their, their collections, you know, failed didn't do very well at the beginning but they just kept going kept pushing and 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 reproducing it but it was so interesting sort of looking under the covers and finding these amazing mostly women who who told them the stories um um, some of the young middle class women who lived um, who were their neighbors such as Dorchenville who 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 features very prominently in my book but also some of the other uh, women who who they met who told them so many different kinds of tales and to find out their stories and why they to sort of ask why they why particular stories resonated for them it's uh it looks absolutely fascinating just for the benefit of the audience you want to sort of quickly list the, the storytellers that you chose for the book and where and when they are yes so the book starts with Gian Battista Basile who's an Italian storyteller from the 17th century and he wrote a book called the tale of tales which is the first integral collection of fairy tales in Europe so that means that it's 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 the first time that you've got a book that is almost entirely fairy tales I think of the 50 stories in it 49 of them have that sort of magical element to them so there were fairy tales before that such as Straparola in Venice um, etc so earlier but th that was a mixture of of many different genres whereas this is very much these are all you know stories with fairies or ogres or you know different elements of transformations different elements of magic and it also includes some of the key, some of the earliest versions of, of some of the really, really iconic stories. There's um, the story of Senna and Tola, which is which we know as Cinderella. Um, there's a, a, an early version of Rapunzel. 
um, there's Sleeping Beauty, which which had been told earlier, I think, in the 14th century in a book called Percy Forest, but um, is um, you know, Basile really kind of makes it into that sort of that sort of classic fairy tale. Although his version is 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 quite a strange one. Um, there's even a story that is uh, that has similarities with Hansel and Gretel, which we think of as very much a German story, but it's um, the story of Nanello and Nanila, who are two children who are taken by their father into the woods and abandoned. Um, and there's a trail of, of, of bran that is then eaten, eaten by a donkey, and then they're, they're lost. Then it goes off in a completely different direction. One of them gets swallowed by a, by a giant fish um, um, and um, taken by pirates and swallowed by a giant fish. So it, it becomes very different. But um, So Basile's uh, sort of, I see him as a sort of real, real kind of cornerstone of the of the Western fairy tale tradition, the book then goes into goes goes to looking at the um, Middle Eastern stories from uh, the Thousand One Nights, um, particularly focusing on um, um, Hannah Diab, who who was a Syrian, a young Syrian who came to France with um, Paul Lucas, uh, an archaeologist working for the French court, and he recited stories to Antoine Galland, who had already become famous as the as the translator of the Thousand One Nights. But the stories that Hannah Diab narrated to him included Aladdin. Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, um, the, uh, uh, the the Ebony Horse, and many others that are really sort of amongst the most iconic stories of the um, of the Thousand and One Nights, and um, he um, had an incredibly adventurous experience traveling between Syria and France, meeting many uh, many sort of famous and iconic figures of the time, and um, getting into all kinds of scrapes, battles with uh, with pirates, shipwrecks, and all sorts of adventures. So um, it's a he's a very interesting character. Um, then the book goes into uh, Madame de Villeneuve, who is the woman who wrote Beauty and the Beast. And this is, again, an, an instance of, of, of that sort of thing that really excites me, of being able to sort of shed light on somebody who hasn't got the attention they deserved. And I think if anybody should be a household name amongst the other storytellers, really, the woman who wrote Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I, I just I, it baffles me that she isn't better known. There are reasons for it, which I go into in the book. Um, and... Uh, um, one of the reasons is that her version of Beauty and the Beast wasn't actually it was it did have some success in its time, but it wasn't a massive international bestseller. And it took later retellings to really turn that story into the big sort of worldwide hit that it became. But very much the story that we know, and obviously it's a, it, it is a very archetypal story. And the idea of the the woman who who marries the monster groom it, you know goes back centuries and millennia. But the idea of that particular story that is called Beauty and the Beast, where the merchant is has to escape from a storm, goes into an enchanted palace, has that sort of meal there, and then steals a rose, is accosted by the beast. Then his um, his daughter has to come and take his place, and then gets to know this beast in this sort of palace with strange wonders around it, and um, and then goes back to her family, and comes back again, sort of saves the beast from from sort of dying of love sickness and agrees to marry him. That is very much the the template that was set down by Madame de Villeneuve in 1740. And um, she, uh, again, had a very interesting life, which has some sort of very surreal overlaps with the story that she told. Then we go to Germany and we meet Dorchen Wild, who was uh, the uh, daughter of an apothecary who lived in Kassel in, in the region of Hesse, just when the Napoleonic invasion came along. And she lived opposite the Grimm brothers and she told them many, many stories. Um, as I've mentioned, like uh, Rumpelstiltskin, the, the Six Swans, the Elves and the Shoemaker, and possibly Hansel and Gretel, and also married Wilhelm Grimm. So she was a hugely important figure in their lives, um, a big influence both as a storyteller and also, I think, in the, the way that she supported and, and helped the brothers through the uh, tumultuous process of, of, of turning all those stories into the big success that they became. Um, and then we go to Russia and some of the darkest of the fairy tales of Ivan Khudjakov, who... Um, was this young uh, guy in Siberia who, who traveled to Moscow and St. Petersburg, collected stories um, from the Ryazan region and put together this um, amazing collection of stories about Baba Yaga and um, many other Russian figures, and then got himself involved with, um, with, uh, with the uh, nihilist movement and um, ended up um, having, having a rather tragic end. And then we moved to India, and um, that's going back, the furthest back into the past, and that is looking at the stories from the 11th century from a collection that is called The Ocean of the Streams of Story, which I think is probably the, the best title of a, of, a, of a fairy tale collection. And these are um, some really, really magical stories. There's the story of the Golden City, where um, a gambler claims that he's seen this mythical city so that he can impress a princess, but she knows that he's like, she has him kicked out of the port, and so then he decides he's going to find this mythical city, and he goes on this adventure, he gets, he gets shipped 
shipwrecked, he gets captured by pirates, he gets swallowed by a giant fish. It's sounding a bit like that Bazile story, actually. He um he 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 eventually finds this this magical city, but then he's um he he uh, he, he he marries the it's, it's sort of dominated by this um, sort of immortal princess, but then he. He, he loses the city and he ends up back at square one. It has to, it's a sort of snakes and ladders situation where he has to go all the way back and do the whole adventure all over again. And it's a real wild tale. And there are all sorts of fascinating magical stories, which many of which have, have really strong resonances with stories that we know in the European tradition. There's a story, for example, about a girl who goes through a forest um, sowing mustard seeds along the way so that she can find her way through the forest, which has this sort of element of Hansel and Gretel to it. Um, and um, stories about lots of stories about um, characters who get involved with demons and ghouls and um, there's a corpse possessing zombie that tells stories one of the great things about the ocean of the streams of story is that everybody tells stories so you have stories told by princes and princesses and, and generals and ministers but you also have stories told by the guy who sells the bedsteads in the market told by even by demons who are living in fiery pits everybody's constantly got a story. And it's one of the things that makes it a very confusing book to read because as soon as somebody starts a story, somebody then interrupts them with their own story and then somebody else comes in with another story. And that's part of the sort of the charm and the joy of it. But you're constantly thinking, which story am I in now? Which is part of what makes it so much fun. But the guy who wrote it, Somadeva, he was an 11th century courtier poet who was telling these stories for his queen to, to soothe her whilst turmoil was going on in Kashmir. And um, he was drawing on stories from from all, from all over the place and stories that were going back centuries. But so there are many, but many of them are some of the earliest versions that we have of these tales. And um, and then we move right the way to the north to 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 the end of the book, which is with Hans Christian Andersen in the mid nineteenth century. And that is um, and he is obviously the the big sort of famous storyteller. In a way, I think of him as being the sort of sort of where I would like. Uh, it would be nice if some of these other storytellers were on that same kind of level of renown. Um, so it, it, I, I guess sort of finishing with him is sort of a way of saying, well, you know, w- you know, we should, they should all be on that sort of, that's have that sort of, that sort of level of, of, of fame. I mean, that said, he is, I think it's very understandable that he is so famous. He He's a brilliant storyteller. He's sort of got his, I think his, his fashionability sort of fluctuates. I'm not sure if he's particularly flash, fashionable at the moment, but I think when you read his stories and, and you look at them again, and and look at the sort of the textures and the way that he describes things. The world building in some of those stories is just incredible, and um, you know, and the imagination. And he did genuinely come up with with his own his own tales, which was really unique to be able to 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 create tales for that 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 he that he'd imagined himself, but that had that feeling of being very traditional tales. And that's partly because of where he came from. He came from from very humble origins, from from Odense in Denmark used to hear sort of stories told at the the local port law institute when he went there with his grandmother women around the spinning wheel would tell stories and so he grew up hearing these stories and i think he just had an amazing instinct for storytelling and then he went to copenhagen and he he had a really hard time sort of trying to get in with the with the well to do and being sort of knocked down many times and was incredibly resilient and just kept sort of picking himself up and going and kept going and 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 gradually you know after many false starts became hugely successful and and was 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 beloved and renowned in his lifetime became friends with people like Charles Dickens although he had a little bit of a tricky time when he went to visit him in Ramsgate and um, friends with the Grimms but again he um, when he first uh, knocked on the door of the Grimms they'd never heard of him which he was very put out by because he did like you know he liked people to know who he was um, but they eventually um, got in touch and he had a very nice time reading his stories to them which he which he was very delighted to be able to do and um you know lived lived to a decent age so um you know in a way he he is i think one of the one of the few fairy tellers who actually really did have had his own happy ending and he said he he very said it very openly you know my life is a fairy tale um so there is something rather sort of sweet i think about his story so yeah those are the the seven story the seven fairy tellers. Mm, <laughs> Obviously there are yeah. many many more and um you know in a way one of the difficulties of writing this book was was the ones you have to cut out and not include. I mean I I've, I've got a bit about the Baroness Dornoy who I think is such a key figure in many ways um from the 1690s in France and is the woman who probably invented the term conte fairy tales and wrote these amazing stories about really sort of self-determining herons who 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 fight their way cut the heads off ogres and 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 dress in amazingly glamorous dresses and sort of do whatever they want but i didn't want to have sort of more than one in france and i felt that um 
that Madame de Villeneuve really does, you know, was, I really wanted to sort of draw attention to her. So I, so I put more of a focus on her. But there were many that, that I was thinking about, oh, I'd love to include this, you know. So, you know, who knows, maybe one day there'll be, there'll be more. <laughs> it's the, the, the disadvantage of a fixed text. Uh... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, these forgotten fairy tellers, how difficult was it to find out about them at the beginning? You know, when you started asking these questions, was the information there? How deeply did you have to, to dig? In? It really varies because with some of them, there's been some amazing scholarly research done on them. And a lot of there's a lot of experts out there who've, who've done uh, who've, who've written about them, who've, who've, who've done a lot of research and a lot of translation work. So when it comes to somebody like Gian Battista Basile, for example, the author of the Tale of Tales, the sort of first integral um, fairy tale collection in Europe, he ha- he's been translated. He was translated by Richard Burton back in the 19th century, then by Norman Penzer in the 1930s, and most recently by Nancy Knaper, who's a professor in the United States and who's written quite extensively about him. And so I was able to connect with Professor Knaper and talk to her quite a, a great length about him. So that really did help. And she also forwarded me some other documents uh, about him, including some letters that he wrote to his family when he was because he was moving around various different courts of southern Italy in the 17th century. He led this very to rambunctious life he was a soldier of fortune he he was a he, he was a soldier for the venetian court in crete when they were fighting against the ottoman turks and he came back to naples where he was from and um his sister was a, a very successful singer singing um she was having music composed for her by Monteverdi, the great composer, and moving around various sort of high-flying courts. And so he would sort of follow in her coattails. And then he he never seemed to be able to hold a job down for very long. So his postings wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't last much more than a year, and then he'd be off somewhere else. And whilst he was going around these various places trying to sort of carve out a living in the, in the coattails of the courts, he was finding out these tales and he sort of talks about them in 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 some of his correspondences uh, he calls them these old wives tales and tales of ogres and um so um so there's a lot of, there is actually quite a lot of material about him but it's 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 scattered and it was a question of sort of finding the right people to talk to in that case when it comes to some of the others um probably the hardest one was Ivan Khodyakov and his his work has been barely any of it has ever been translated into english and he's really very little known, which I found really surprising because the more I found out about him, the more fascinating I thought he he was. He was a guy who who grew up in in Siberia, the son of a school inspector, went to the University of Kazan. It wasn't a particularly auspicious start in life, but then he moved to Moscow and St. Petersburg and he went around the villages, particularly in a region called Ryazan, which is near to Moscow, collecting stories from, from the mouths of the people. And he was one of the first storytellers to really genuinely do that. It's what we think of the Grimms doing, but they didn't really. It's but he actually did. And he went around these villages and he talked to the the serfs and heard their stories and collected them and published a collection at the age of just 18 years old. So it's really an incredible achievement. And then published other collections later. But then he got involved with of, um, with a sort of uh, the growing socialist movement, and um, uh, they were very much against the Tsar and against the against the elites and the, um, the the corruption and the repressions that were going on. And um, part one of their um, projects was to try and assassinate the Tsar. And obviously, once he got involved in that, then he was going to be in very deep trouble. And um, so he ended up being involved in a trial that had him sent to the. Uh, most remote parts of Siberia to the the coldest town on earth. He measured it himself. Actually, I think it was minus sixty three degrees Celsius. Um, place called Verkhoyansk, and um, his mind went to pieces there, and he ended up in a psychiatric ward in in a Siberian hospital. So it's a very sort of tragic life, a very almost a sort of classic sort of nineteenth century Russian um, writer's life. You know, sadly, he's not actually the only Russian folklorist who whose mind seems to have gone to pieces. But um, um, but out of that, he produced this amazing collection of stories about um, the witch Baba Yago in her hut on chicken legs, and um, the the search for the firebird. Ivan, who, who goes through many different sort of scrapes and perils to find the firebird, the beautiful Maria Marevna and Hoshe the Deathless, who, who cannot be killed um, um, directly. You have to find his death, which is buried inside a chest. It's inside an egg, inside a hair in a chest, hidden under an oak tree. Um, and it's wonderfully colourful and macabre tales. But there's very little about him. So I had to really sort of dig that out and get books. Sent. I had a book sent to me from the Ukraine um, and it was all in Russian. So I had to find Russian translators to help me to uh, to translate some of it and um it was you know it was it was it was quite hard work 
but um, really, really, um, really, just really interesting to find out about it because it, you know, it felt like this was really bringing news, which is, I think, is what you know you want to be doing with a book to to try and sort of bring stuff in that hasn't maybe been given the attention that it deserves. Yeah, no, I, I very much feel the same way. I think um, what I love about doing the podcast is finding new material and bringing it to light, or giving something an airing that that you perhaps feel just hasn't not, not enough people know about it yeah exactly it's that idea of you're sort of trying to shine a spotlight on things and, and people and 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 stories that that you think why why do we not know about these and it's often that the first thing is myself thinking why do I not know about this why have I never heard about this and you know and then as soon as I find something that I, th- I think is really exciting really interesting I think well I, I want to share this with other people and you know and 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 tell other people about this amazing thing so with somebody like Ivan Khodjakov you know I, I feel a you know I, re- I want to tell people about this this incredible guy who you know he was strange and he was flawed but he was amazing you know for the achievement that he that he made in, in collecting all these stories and I think it's the same with most with all of the storytellers in this book I mean they're all people who I feel very passionate about wanting to tell people about um Dorchen Wild who who was one of the main contributors to the Grimm brothers and she married Wilhelm Grimm um, and she told them these fantastic stories including the elves and the shoemaker Rumpelstiltskin um, probably Hansel and Gretel but there's you know there's some debate among scholars about that um, the six ones a lot of very grisly stories and um, her her life uh, there's a sort of interesting kind of tension in in her story about she's in the history she comes across and there's lots of sources actually with, with the Grimm's one of the lovely things is there is a lot of there's a lot of research has been done and there are a lot of sources um even though a lot of them are still only in German um haven't necessarily been translated there's um quite recently a um a, a, a some reminiscences that she left behind which she dictated to her daughter um which she was able to get hold of and and she comes across as a very mild, very gentle person, very family orientated. But then you look at her stories, and if you sort of isolate her stories from some of the other from the other stories in the Grimm's collections, you see that they are really some of them are really grisly. So you've got the six ones, for example, where this girl takes a vow of silence and then she gives birth, and her mother-in-law takes away her babies and smears her mouth with blood and claims that she's been eating her children, and she can't tell anybody because of her vow of silence, which is a very sort of fairy tale thing um you know in in reality i think you'd say that wasn't me <laughs> but um you know being a fairy tale of course she has to stick with that and um you know you've got the sweetheart ronan where the um where the witch kills her own daughter and then the blood the drops of blood of her daughter tell her where where the other girl who she wants to kill has escaped to so these are really dark tales um and uh, and you sort of wonder why is it that this seemingly very sort of uh, you know gentle mannered person told these dark tales and i think it's really you know it, it makes her very it's very interesting you know what trying to work that out and i talked to lots of people one of the people i talked to about that is a, a novelist called kate forsyth who's also a, a professor a, a scholar and has written about dorchenville and she her her interpretation was that she felt that dorchenville was the, was a victim of sexual abuse by her father um i don't think that there isn't i mean that's obviously uh, she's taking creative license with that but it's a you know i think actually a very plausible um theory um but there's certainly a lot of um you know there's certainly a lot of questions about what it was that made that made her tell these particularly dark tales and i think with every storyteller there's this sense that there are secrets there there are you know with each of the storytellers that that i've talked about in the book each of them i think had their secrets had there was something going on sort of under the surface and that was the sort of the fun and the challenge of trying to write about them even when it comes to the more famous ones actually i mean all of the there are seven storytellers in the book and i would say that six of them are probably not household names one of them is very much a household name and that's hans christian anderson but even with him actually there's still a sense that the full story hasn't necessarily been told you know when you dig into his diaries and um with absent getting there's there's a lot of material i mean he mainly mainly because he wrote about himself an awful lot and um, he wrote so many diaries and autobiographies and he wrote a lot of travel books as well so he left behind a huge amount of writing about himself and it was the subject that he was most interested in really um and and he's a fascinatingly complex character. He he struggled with loneliness, with feelings of of a, a sort of lack of worth, with the fact that he'd come from a very poor background and he was mixing in a very in very snobbish circles that often looked down on him, even though he was definitely probably the most talented person in the room most of the time. And um, you know he talks about you know this need to constantly kowtow to please people to impress people. 
and at the same time he was he was he was quite snobbish himself you know he was constantly very impressed by you know the kings and queens and sort of he records in his diaries oh this that you know the duke of weimar kissed my hand what an honor and you know i was sitting in a carriage carriage with you know with with this or that lord or duke and and um i think he you know he rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way in many ways but um but that's all part of what makes him so interesting i think and then he also had you know issues with his sexuality and and that's something that i think people have been very reticent to 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 research and explore and i think in denmark especially there's quite a um there's almost a taboo against talking about it too much but uh, you know you look into his relationship with for example there's a ballet dancer called harold Schaff who he had a close relationship with and um some of the things that he wrote in his diary definitely suggest that that you know that he you know that it, I think it would be very plausible to to think that he was certainly probably bisexual, and um, or you know certainly sort of you know attracted to men in some ways, and um, so that's all kind of I think part of finding new ways of 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 exploring these you know even these famous storytellers there you know the, this is I think still part of the sense of bringing news, and I think also with our awareness of things like mental health which is sort of growing in recent years. I think you can now look at somebody like Anderson and see that he obviously had some very, very significant mental health issues that we, I think previous generations of, of, of um, interpreters haven't necessarily been able to sort of look at in the same way that we can now. But then you also have to be careful, I think, not to sort of project our own kind of modern sensibilities onto this and try and understand them in the context of the time. So that's all part of this, you know, what was what is quite a complex challenge, I think, of you know mm-hmm. trying to sort of, Dig the dig out these people and and shine that light on them and try and be as accurate and and vivid and sort of you know and 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 detailed as possible. Yeah, I really love that. I think the the idea of putting the teller back into these fairy tales is very powerful because it also speaks directly to that kind of. Um, I mean, we'll talk about about this in a minute, but you know, um, fairy tales. Uh, some some people define fairy tales as the uh, the literary expression of uh, oral folklore, or where where they mm. kind of cross a divide, and uh, you know the you know these books come to us with these tales and they're kind of set in a text, but stories are actually told by an individual for particular reasons at a particular time, and yeah. uh, it's immensely exciting to be able yeah. to to you know reach back and get in touch with that yeah and i think that actually with fairy tales it's really important to remember that oral aspect of them i actually um one of the questions i guess that i was asking myself throughout the course of of writing the book and it's something that i address in the epilogue of the book is what is a fairy tale and and i sort of felt that if i'm going to write a book about fairy tales i do need to come up with my own definition of what it is and it's quite difficult because Every language seems to have its own term for them, and they're not very—they're not parallel. Um, so, in Danish, for example, they call them eventyr, which means adventures, and in in German, Martian, which is little tales, or in Arabic, it's hikaya al khayaliya. I think they have several terms, but that means tales of imagination. So, they're not necessarily corresponding terms. And obviously, we have in English um, uh, fairy tale from the French conte fée, which which tales of fairies. But even the English idea of fairies and the French idea of fairies, there's a bit of discrepancy between, I think. So um, so it's sort of tricky to define them. But one of the, I, I think I, I sort of came up with that, I felt there were three particular qualities that a story has to have to be a fairy tale. And they were that it um, needed to have some element of the supernatural or magic. Um, it needed to be tellable to children. And it needed to have a, a sense of oral, of, of orality about it. So it needs to be a story that you can tell that doesn't have to be, fixed in a text but can be retold orally and and can sort of change i think that that's sort of how it how it differs from children's literature and um and i think it's a i think it's actually like a really crucial part of it and i think you see that in even in those stories that were written they were you know that so the hans christian anderson stories for example he even he said that he he wrote them as he would tell them to children and his stories have a very strong oral sense about them so he often addresses the the listener, the the, the reader, um, you know, he addresses them directly. There's lots of little phrases that he uses, and and he uses those sort of repetitions that I think are a, are a key part of fairy tales. And with each of the storytellers that I chose for for this book, there is that there is some sense of of orality I think in each of them. So whether it was Gian Battista Basile who was collecting stories that were told to him by various people around around the uh, the, the villages and, and courts of southern Italy, or Hannah 
Diab, the Syrian storyteller who, who recited the story of Aladdin to Antoine Galland in early 18th century Paris, or Dutchen Wild, who was telling stories to the Grimms, or even Khodjikov, who was collecting stories that were told to him by from the mouths of, of people in rural Russia, um, or, uh, or or even uh, Somadeva, the, uh, the Indian storyteller, he he was um, narrating his stories to the Queen in Kashmir to soothe her over, there was a civil war going on at the time, and, and the idea was that he was telling these stories to, to, to help her, you know, sort of um, soothe her from all the troubles going on. So there's that sense constantly of, of a speaker with an audience. And I think that's a, a really key component of what makes a fairy tale. Hmm. Yeah, no, I love I love this. I love hearing about, um, you know, these, these people who are traveling and then, you know, they're all talking to each other and um, something that would be brilliant to come back to actually is that because you, you can almost hear this tension, uh, you know, these social tensions between, you know, uh, uh, fame, celebrity, poverty, uh, uh, social class and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, all of these things are central to fairy tales themselves quite often. Um, so I think that would be a, a fascinating topic to to dive into. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of weird how much their lives do overlap in so many ways with the stories. So, with somebody like Madame de Villeneuve, for example, that she 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 grew up in the in the minor aristocracy, became bankrupted, you know, married the wrong guy who was a bit dissolute rake, and ended up in all sorts of debts, and then had to sort of claw her way out of out of a debt ridden life, which is which is really the situation that um, at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast that Belle and her family are facing. So it's sort of interesting how, how you often see, I think it's one of the reasons why certain storytellers connect with particular stories. They feel like they can sort of feel a personal connection with them. They then very much bring their own imagination to it. But I think that often people sort of need that sort of that way into a story, something that, that resonates for them. You start with Jean-Baptiste Bazile. Is, is it, was he the first person that you decided to investigate? I felt that with Basile, the thing is that because he tells us stories like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Rapunzel, he's very much sort of that kind of accessible way in. You know, this, these are the sort of fairy tales that we that, you know, that I think most Western readers know and love. And actually, even outside of the West, I think, you know, stories like Cinderella, are, you know, still are, are really, you know, they just it's international, isn't it? Every It's known all around the world. It's the one that there are so many different versions of. And his version of Cinderella, I think, is really interesting because he has her killing the stepmother by um, uh, smacking the, the lid of a trunk on her head and snapping her neck. And um, she's a much more um, vocal and more sort of um, uh, independent character than she is in the later versions that the that Charles Perrault and the Brothers Grimm made. And that's one of the reasons why Basile's version isn't so well known, I think. So I thought there was a sort of nice combination of accessible, you know, with the stories that he told, whilst at the same time, he's quite a radical figure. He was fighting against the Spanish occupation of, of Naples at the time. So he was writing in the Neapolitan dialect. He was very much his, he he, he has, his heroes are often sort of, you know, rustic characters from the, from the Italian countryside or sort of minor gentry or courtiers from or Italian courtiers. But he's very hard on the, the outsiders coming in. And, um, you know, has a lot of pop shots at the Spanish and, you know, you know, where any, anywhere he can, he'll sort of have a go at them, you know, and, 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 and various other outsiders that he felt were, were, were making life hard for Neapolitans. And um, so there's this sort of a sense of a sort of radical project going on. And that may be one of the reasons why the book wasn't actually published in his lifetime. It was only published after he after he died. But at the same time, it is it's it's also, I think, probably the most charming collection of fairy tales or even for me, I think it's the most charming short story collection that I've ever read. It's just so beautifully mad. I mean, it's it's really full of a sense of the madness and injustice of the world. So he's constantly going off on tangents saying, you know, oh, my God, the life of a courtier is crazy. You know, you're throwing all your hopes to the wind. Why would anybody do it? But that's exactly what he was doing with his life. So he's, you know, and he's, 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 he's constantly sort of going on riffs. There's a lovely scene in one of the stories where um, a, a couple of ogres are talking in a wood and one of them saying to the other, what's going on in the world? And, and the other one says, oh, if you only knew, you know, everything's gone crazy. There's um, uh, lazy bones seem to be getting all the all the promotions. Counterfeiters are rewarded. Scoundrels are, are, are getting preferment. It's an absolute disaster. And you can sense that Basili is using these magical tales as his, as his way of taking out his, his fury at the 
at the injustices of the world. And I think for anybody who feels that they live in a in a mad world, which you know I think some of us feel even now, um, it, it it has that resonance. You know, it feels like yes, the world is is insane. You know, why is it? You know, you look around. Why 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 are there all these injustices? And so I think he really. Um, he really sort of captures that sense. So whilst it's a, a book that's very much of its time, very much of the 17th century, and it's very full of references, and that's why I think the, the most recent translation by Nancy Canaper is so, because you get lot, you know, lots of the, the references explained with really good footnotes, and, and, and the translation is very, very colourful and, and, and charming. So it's got all those references, but at the same time, it is very resonant, I think, and very, it feels very modern in so many ways. What role did um, sort of travel and sharing stories uh, play in your your research into the tale of tales? Yeah, so I went to to southern Italy and to Naples for that part of the book to to, to research that and, and met some really, uh, really, well, first of all, it was just really lovely just spending some time in Naples because it's such a, a beautiful, chaotic city and it feels like the, the 17th century is very much alive in it. So whether it's visiting the church where they have uh, Caravaggio's um, Seven Acts of Mercy hanging in the very place where it was painted for which is very rare with a painting you usually have to go to a museum but there you find it in the place where it was painted for uh, for and it was it was done for and it was a, a it really is a description or a visual description of the streets of naples in that period and done for a group of aristocratic men amongst whom was one of Giambattista Basile's own patrons so there's a lovely connection between Caravaggio and Basile and in fact I also went to a to a tavern where Basile used to go and drink and Caravaggio went there as well and he got wounded in a knife fight whilst he was there so there were all these sort of really interesting connections and these places which are still very much there from Basile's time um, so that was really interesting, and then also meeting people who were who were connected in some way with Basile. I met a couple of actors who were putting on a performance of one of Basile's tales, and this was a tale called "The Old Woman Who Was Skid," which is a really macabre tale. It's about two um, uh, old ladies who live in a hovel right next to a castle, and they complain that the king's always making too much noise. So he decides that whoever lives in this hovel must be the sort of the height of refinement, and so he starts trying to woo them, and ends up managing to persuade one of them to come to his bedchamber. But as soon as he finds out that she's an old lady, he has her thrown out of window and um and and she ends up hanging from a tree but then some fairies come along and they turn her into a beautiful teenage girl who he then decides he wants to marry which then means that the other sister is like well wh why didn't this happen to me and um so then she asks her sister you know how did you get to turn into a into a, um, a young a beautiful young girl and she says i was skinned and so the other sister goes to a barber and has herself skinned which is the end of the story it's not a very happy ending um so um they did uh, a play of this of this story and it was um really really poignant actually because it's a story that is very strange and macabre but also there's a lot of you know it's a, it's a very sad tale really um and it, it has a lot to say i think about uh, the uh, pressures on women uh, women with, uh, with their appearances so um it so it was it was beautifully done and, and we talked a lot about Basile um, and the importance his importance in Neapolitan culture um and the way that his stories have been retold various times there's been opera productions of um, ballets and, and various other productions of, of different tales of his so that sense that he's very much alive in Naples and that you can see Naples through his stories so that was great and also going down to the Basilicata to some of the places where Basile um, lived um, I went down to a place called Matera where there uh, people used to live in 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 the caves down there and um, there was um, until the 1950s until quite recently um, and so you can get that sense of that connection with the way that he describes the ogres who are these you know often very wise but um, you know people who are treated as outsiders and you can sense you know that that a connection there with you know people having to live in these grottos and in, the, in these very sort of um, very grotesque conditions and um, and another place that I went to was Avellino, which is one of the places where I think Basile was at his happiest. He worked as a governor there for a prince who loved poets and writers and surrounded himself with a very sort of cultured court. And um, it's said that there he wrote a lot of the tale of tales. That Basile wrote a lot of the tale of tales. And there's an uh, there's a group there, the um, Academia dei Dobliosi, which which dates back to the 17th century and has um, you know it's still is still around today, and they still have regular meetings. So it was really lovely getting to sort of meet them and and see how you know to hear about their their activities and how they they still feel very very fond of Basile. so that was um part of the italian journey and i, I traveled to i tried to travel to various places for the, for each of the different sections so i went to um went to um 
see a performance of Beauty and the Beast, a, a theatre performance of Beauty and the Beast in Nice in, in France, which was which was based on the on Madame de Villeneuve's original production, and it was great talking to the the, the writer. He was the writer and also playing the Beast, um, uh, actor called Thierry Vincent, and. Um, and, and to Germany and to, to see, I mean, Germany, you can see so much of the Brothers Grimm's world is still very much alive and in Kassel, although it was heavily bombed and, and destroyed in the war, there's still, um, there's still a lot of, of a lot of the, uh, in, in the villages around, you can still see the architecture of the time, the Grimm's uh, childhood home is still, you can still visit. And, um, and one of the things I went to was a, was a, was a festival of witches in, in a village in the Black Forest in Waldkirk. And, um, that's a wonderful way of seeing how those stories still have that sort of folk resonance, you know, people gathering around these stories. And it was a, it's a, it's an annual festival where they have a guild of, of, of men who dress up as witches and they, they, they go around the village square with their brooms and, and, and cackling and, and casting spells and, and creating a big fire and, and fireworks and so on. And, you know, hundreds of people gather and many of them in fancy dress. So it was really, uh, you know, really quite an occasion and um, great to hear, you know, to meet people there and hear how, how some of the grim stories still really, you know, still, you know, they still really enjoy them and, and uh, you know, everybody has their own different favorite story. So, um, so, so that was that was great, and and I also went up to Lapland um, and and to Denmark, and um, I met some ballet uh, ballet performers who were putting on a production of Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, um, and uh, it was great sort of talking to them about the, about that production. It was designed by the da- by the Queen of Denmark, um, by the Tivoli Ballet Theatre, because apparently The Snow Queen is is her favourite fairy tale. And um, she's actually designed and done the costumes for a lot of different uh, ballet performances of Hans Christian Andersen. She's really, she's really a big fan of him. Um, and um, and I carried on to Lapland because I was I sort of wanted to uh, I, I think it was a sort of you know childhood um, fantasy I guess of uh, sort of going back to as a child sort of being fascinated by the Snow Queen. I wanted to sort of live my own kind of Snow Queen adventure. So I, I went all the way to Lapland and met up with reindeer herders um, in. Um, in Lapland around Lake Inari, and um, it was great sort of seeing seeing the reindeers and learning about the way that you know the the, the challenges of of, um, of herding reindeer today, and um, and also went to a snow castle because um, obviously if you're you know delving into the Snow Queen, you've got to go you've got to find a castle of snow, and um, so there's a place called Kemi on the Bothnian Gulf where they have a, a an annual snow castle that they build from the snow. They gather the the snow and they and they build this amazing castle. They have artists who do different designs inside. And um, then people pay exorbitant amounts of money to stay there. Um, so I got, sort of got to visit it just before it just before it was opening, um, and it was just fantastic. You know, absolutely freezing cold, but um, you know, really, really, really fun just to see this the, see this castle and see all the all the equipment they had they were using to try and sort of dig it up and build it and put it together. So yeah, lots of really good, great adventures. Unfortunately, the pandemic then broke out sort of whilst I was sort of still planning uh, planning my research. So um, so so. With some bits of the book, it was more about kind of finding people on um, sort of around the world, and 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 one of the good things that happened in the pandemic, I think, actually, is that people became very available because often didn't have very much else going on. So you could sort of connect with scholars and academics and experts, sort of in various different places, whether it was India or in Russia or in America, and talk to them about their work. and And people were very, really kind about sort of sending work that stuff that they've been working on sending sort of documentation and, and things that I, you know archives and things that I wasn't able to get to so um so that was you know that was sort of added I guess a different layer to the book yeah uh, it, it sounds wonderful when you were traveling I guess you're engaging with this global culture that's grown up around these stories and figures that have become kind of canonical in some in some senses and uh Mm -hmm. we're talking about definitions of fairy tales and it it brings to mind something that jack zipes says about um the literary aspect being when they they pass into that kind of cultural machine and uh, especially now with stuff like disney yeah um, did you find that when you when you went to these places, did you have much contact with an existing oral culture? Did you learn new stories, or or was it very much sort of this kind of machine of the the famous uh, stories? I think there is there is a sense that those famous stories are very dominant, and I think it's partly because a lot of I'm I'm very interested in in performance of stories, and with other books as well, I've tried to sort of meet people who are putting on 
performances of, of, of different ways of putting on performances, whether it's through sort of puppet theatre or, or through oral storytelling or, um, or plays, ballets, operas and so on. But the, I think the problem with a lot of these is that they people want to sell tickets and so they tend to go back to the stories that they know are going to be familiar. But often when you're talking to people, you'd find them coming up with many different ones. So, for example, at the Witches Festival in Waldkirk in the in the Black Forest, um, you know, I, we were, you know, I would ask people, you know, do you have a favourite Grimm's tale? And I think every single person that I asked had a different one. You know, somebody, it was the frog princess, another person, it was... Um, uh, was you know some people would say things like you know um, the, the su- surprising stories like the six servants or um, um, uh, strong uh, what is it strong Johannes or you know various different stories that you know you wouldn't necessarily uh, think think of as being the most iconic ones um, and I think that yeah so I think it's often sort of through those conversations that, that you'd have that people would come up with different stories or actually at the um, and at the ballet theatre in 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 Copenhagen, they I was there when they were putting on the Snow Queen, but they'd actually put on a lot of different Hans Christian Andersen stories, and I think some of them were some of the, you know were not necessarily the I mean they were mostly you know fairly well known ones like the Steadfast Tin Soldier, um, the Little Mermaid, and so on. But I think a couple of them were maybe some of the lesser known ones. So um, and you would yeah you find sort of these conversations you know in you know I think when as you chat to people you know and, um, people who really obviously spent a lot of their time with with these stories you know you. you 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 know that often sort of recommend um, different tales. Um, I remember having a conversation with somebody at there's a, there's a place called Grimveld in Castle, which is a sort of museum dedicated to the Grimms. Um, we had a chat about the the forests and which which stories of the Grimms reflect which different forests. So um, uh, the uh, the guy one of the administrators there was was sort of t- saying how he felt that certain stories. Um, seemed to him to echo the black forest the sort of dark pine forest but other stories feel like they're more connected to the forests around castle which are more sort of lighter beech woods and um you know that sense of sort of different atmospheres coming out from different tales so um so yeah i you know i think that you can sort of get outside of that sort of that canon like you say that sort of the those canonical tales and i have wondered often actually and you mentioned disney and obviously i don't want to actually i know that jack zipes isn't isn't too keen on disney um um and obviously and um um he i spoke to him actually in in researching the book and he's obviously just you know such an amazing sort of figure in fairy tale research and you know obviously knows everything um but I think because I remember as a child really loving those films, I don't really, I feel like I don't want to sort of say, oh, you know, I, I really do, don't like them. Although, um, I, you know, I think when you look at them in the context of the sort of broader history of fairy tales, you know, it does feel a bit annoying that those films have sort of, have created that very sort of dominant and in some ways restrictive um, interpretation of some of those stories. Um, but then I think also that even in film, there's some really interesting there's some really interesting film versions of fairy tales outside of Disney. And I think we often forget about the, the sort of just how much film has done with fairy yeah. tales. No, I mean, in many ways, I, I, I'm an artist myself, so I, I, I do appreciate yeah. Disney films for what they are. And I think uh, that they, they became so ubiquitous at some point that people started taking them for granted. Um, I mean, my favourite fairy tale film, I think, is probably a film called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which was made by Lottie Reiniger, the German animator in the 1920s. And it's, I just think it's brilliant. It's um, it's a sort of, it's a shadow animation. So she did it sort of cutting up pieces of card at her trick table in Berlin in the 1920s. And she did loads of films, but the one that's, I think really has sort of endured is is um, is this one, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And it's a mishmash of various stories for the Thousand One Nights. It's got elements of the the enchanted horse, the idea of the, the prince who, who takes this sort of mechanical horse flying through the sky. And then the story of uh, Prince Ahmed and, and the Frey Banu, which is a sort of, not particularly well-known story from from the A Thousand One Nights, but a very colourful story about a princess living in a sort of magical kingdom. And um, he has, but he also brings in Aladdin and uh, she also brings in Aladdin and various other characters. So it's a sort of, you know, Thousand and One Nights multiverse that really plays around with various motifs from the stories. And and the animation is just sort of out of this world. It's, um, and, and it's very, it, it has that sort of strangeness that I think fairy tales at their best often have and that silent movies also have. So it's, um, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and even even when you look at some of the really iconic ones, I mean, I think obviously Beauty and the Beast is is I think the story that just seems to be I think that Cinderella just seems to be you know you know never endingly being retold. 
But actually, some of the, and obviously the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast is, you know, I loved it when it came out. I thought it was great. So, you know, I wouldn't want to say anything against it. And I think the songs are great. But the best version, surely, of that film, I think, is probably Jean Cocteau's version from 1946, which he made sort of straight after the end of World War II. And it's just the most beautifully decorous film. Um, And one of the things I did research in the book actually was reading his diary of making that film. And he was suffering from so many different illnesses. He had empatigo and bronchitis and toothache and so many other things. And then he cast his lover, Jean Marais, as the beast. And then Marais was struggling with blood circulation because of the the, uh, makeup and the, the mask that he had to wear. And it just seems like everything was going wrong. And they were people were stealing things from the set because obviously France was, you know, going through, you know, economically, uh, you know, terrible times after the war. And um, then there were power cuts and all kinds of problems. And yet they managed to produce this incredibly beautiful, very decorous film. I mean, it's probably feels a bit sedate and slow, you know, by modern standards, but it's just, it's, it's a very, I think a very, very artistic take on that tale. Um, And um, so I think there are these sort of lots of really, really beautiful versions of these films out there. I mean, I was thinking actually, um, just the other day about the Russian stories as well, because um, I was wondering, like, has there ever been like a, a good version of, of the Baba Yaga stories? Because she's such a visual image, you know, the idea of the, the witch in, in a hut on chicken legs. And I was, I was looking it up and I think there's been in Russian, um, in Russia, they've done quite a few Russian movies. And, um, you know, some of them, I think, have, have been you know really successful at the Russian box office. And I suspect actually that now that I think those Russian stories actually seem to be kind of breaking through more and more into into British and American culture, you know, you sort of see sort of versions of, um, I think there's a writer called Sophie Addison who's written sort of children's books about Baba Yaga, about the, the Hutton Chicken Necks, and there are very, uh, various others, I think. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see any of the, in the future if some of those characters sort of find their way into movies. So I think actually that as much as films have sometimes narrowed our, our um, sense of the canon, they, they don't have to, and it would be, you know, I, you know, I'd love to hope that, you know, that actually with with the ever-expanding, you know, with television expanding and with so much, you know, in, in TV and film sort of expanding in many ways, that perhaps, perhaps you know, we could be ripe for some really interesting interpretations of these films. But that may be, uh, you know, wishful thinking. But, you know, if you're, if you're going to, you know, if you can't have wishful thinking when you're delving into fairy tales, then where can you? You have been listening to The Flea and the Forgotten Fairy Tellers, a guest episode of Lore and Legend with travel writer and storyteller Nicholas Jobber. Nick's book is available now from retailers. See the episode notes for links to Nick's website and to his social media. It's really a fascinating book that brings to life the origins of these stories, and I definitely plan on checking out his other books on Prester John the Persian Book of Kings and Europe's saga stories. The lore and legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall, with additional music from Sakilo Museum of Ancient Instruments. To find out more about episodes of lore and legend and the myths and the tales that we tell, you can visit www.loreandlegend.co.uk and you can check out our episode blog posts. And if you like the show and what you've heard and you want to hear more, more music, more sound effects, more ambitious productions, then you really should consider joining our family of patrons and support the podcast financially. For more details, you can visit our website and click support us. That'll take you to Patreon, where you can choose to donate a little bit of money for each episode that we produce. Next month, I very much hope to be sending a Valentine's special episode your way, courtesy of guest storyteller Maria Cradali. It has been recorded, but I'm afraid it won't be out for February 14th. Various shenanigans with work and a positive COVID test from one of my housemates uh, means that I have had to shelter with family and I can't access some vital equipment and recorded material for a little while. And between that and engagements at work, it will unfortunately be delayed. But never fear, you will hear it soon. And thanks once again for listening. I hope that you all stay safe out there, story folk. (laughs) 